Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, hello. This is Stuff to Blow Your Mind audio log. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. This is day 13 of our descent into the famed Library of Babel. We've been exploring this uh, infinite sprawl of interconnected hexagonal rooms and the 20 bookshelves contained within each one. Uh, Joe, how many rooms have we explored since last log entry? Oh, let me find it here. Let's see. Well, we're up to 112, and that brings the grand total of rooms we have explored to date up to 1,561. And, of course, that is not counting the rooms of the library uh, that we could tell had already been explored, so we just skipped over with books pulled out all over the place, or some just had empty shelves, smoke lines on the ceiling, and these ancient piles of cold black coal in the middle of the floor. We can presume from some long-ago book burnings. Yeah, that's right. The, I mean, the, the library is at least indefinite, if not infinite. So it uh, falls to inquisitors such as ourselves to steadily work our way out from charted portions of the library and into uncharted regions. And it really is a room-by-room, book-by-book procedure. Now, fortunately, most of the books are nonsense. And you can spot that right away because I mean real nonsense, total typographical gibberish. And that's not even counting the ones that have been totally or partially burned by the purifiers. I hear footsteps sometimes in the rooms directly above us, and I keep wondering if it's them. It could be, but you know, it could be the book man. Oh, no, that's superstition, Joe. We, we, I mean, we might as well hope to find that the crimson hexagon. Now, come on, Robert. Wouldn't you love to find the one hexagonal room in this entire place that contains something truly precious? Uh, you know, apart from all this gibberish, maybe even real functional books of magic spells. Well, of course I would, but that doesn't mean it actually exists. Even in the Library of Babel? Now, remember, Robert, these rooms contain not only all books, but all possible books. Those books have got to be out there. Well, but that doesn't mean they're actually magical. Yeah, I guess you're right. But sometimes I like to think the Crimson Hexagon is out there, you know. Maybe the purifiers haven't found it yet because it moves. Have you thought about that? Like in the movie Cube? Oh, yeah. The rooms move around while we're asleep? Or like the, the castle in Crawl. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Krull, because I found a copy of Alan Dean Forrester's 1983 novelization of the screenplay of Krull. That's a real book. Yeah, but I also found a Krull novel by Stanford Sherman, the guy who wrote the screenplay. And he never actually wrote a novel version, right? Oh, no, not in our reality. But, of course, it could exist, which means the library has it. And that's why I was also able to find a copy of A Christmas Carol. You might want to see this, where instead of saying, God bless us, everyone, Tiny Tim gives an invocation of Moloch, Lord of Destruction. What about you? Ooh, check this out. Frank Herbert's complete seven-book Dune series. Yeah, not, not just the six he actually wrote in our reality. All seven. Uh, as well as, look at this, an alternate Herbert Dune trilogy. That's only three books long. But a lot more erotic. Yeah? Yeah, you've got to read this. Yeah, it's on my list. But hey, guess what I've got? The final two books of the Game of Thrones series. The, uh, the Song of Ice and Fire. Spoiler, they were on Earth all along, and Westeros is actually in rural North Florida. Ah. Uh, but also, Robert, I have your complete biography, including the end. And as per our agreement, I didn't read it. Oh, well, good. Well, cool. Here's yours then. We oh, can just swap. And thank you, yeah. There we go. We're good. Whoa, wait a minute. Did you hear that? It's probably just other inquisitors or, uh, you know, or pilgrims looking for deposits of alternate gospels. Or book worshippers. Or the purifiers. Or the bookmen. None of that. Let's, let's keep moving. This uh, hexagon up ahead looks pretty promising. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about the Library of Babel. So the Library of Babel is both, uh, it's a short story, but it's also the concept at the core of this short story. And we're really going to be focusing on the concept uh, in, and its broader implications today, not just the story itself. But 
The concept of the Library of Babel comes from a short story of the same name by Jorge Luis Borges, first published in the collection The Garden of Forking Paths in 1941. So Borges was a 20th century Argentine author. He lived from 1899 to 1986, and in his lifetime, especially later in his life, he became famous for poetry essays, but especially short stories. And short stories, a lot of them are kind of like this story. Yeah, I mean, like like a lot of his tales, uh, the Library of Babel is not really a narrative experience. Yeah, it's not much. very plot heavy. Right. It's kind of a, a sort of scholarly missive about a fantastic idea. So he, he chews on this fantastic idea, gets all of these philosophic juices going, and we're just, we're fortunate enough to experience it with him. Uh, and, and his, his stories, there are, there are a number of different themes that often pop up, uh, such as knives, mirrors, dreams. Oh, dreams. There yeah. are some fabulous dream stories. Um, and, and they're all pretty short. Like this, one of the wonderful things about a collection of Borges short fiction is you can just pick it up. You can pr- pretty much pick any story mm-hmm. and just in a few pages, a just mind blowing concept is presented to you that mm-hmm. just ex- expands the limits of your imagination. Yeah. You ever know those like fantasy writers who are better at world building than they are at character and plot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd say Borges is like that, except he writes what would probably be considered now literary fiction. It's, you know, respectable intellectual fiction uh, that that's treated without any hint of a sneer by the Academy, as far as I can right. tell. Uh, but but it's fascinating stuff through and through. Yeah, it it reminds me a lot of um, some of the short fiction that Philip K. Dick would later do. Now, certainly Philip K. Dick was was capable of of producing novel after novel after novel as well. Uh, you know, he he was pretty adept at, at longer works. But some of his short stories remind me of Borges in their ability to, without getting too bogged down in story or character, just presenting a, in a nugget like a really crazy, yeah, mind-warping idea. Yeah. Uh, so we should probably start with a quote from the beginning of the Library of Babel, the story, to give you a sense of what is being talked about here. So this is a quote from the beginning of the story with some uh, editorial elisions for brevity. Quote, The universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite, perhaps infinite number of hexagonal galleries The arrangement of the galleries is always the same. Twenty bookshelves, five to each side, line four of the hexagon's six sides. One of the hexagon's free sides opens onto a narrow sort of vestibule, which in turn opens onto another gallery, identical to the first. Identical, in fact, to all. To the right and left of the vestibule are two tiny compartments. One is for sleeping, upright, the other for satisfying one's physical necessities. Through this space, too, there passes a spiral staircase, which winds upward and downward into the remote distance. In the vestibule, there is a mirror, which faithfully duplicates appearances. Uh, and he goes on to explain how the, the implications of having a mirror in a library that may or may not be infinite, mm-hmm. as far as the characters disclose that they know at first, at least. Yeah, so this is the basic setup. This is the basic hexagon, and then that hexagon is cloned out. Yeah, it's Um, a six-sided room. mm -hmm. There are shelves of books in each room, and the rooms seem to go on forever in in a honeycomb where no one has ever discovered the forest boundary. Right. So there are places, as we mentioned, for wanderers, librarians, etc., to use the bathroom. And to sleep upright. It does make me wonder if, like Barnes and Noble, there is a policy against bringing books into the bathroom or if, I mean, maybe that you have to. Maybe you just have to pick a gibberish book. You know, the question is who enforces the policy? Well, that's, that's one of the things that, as we'll discuss, there seems to be a lack of, uh, a lack of laws and policy mm-hmm. in place in the Library of Babel. Yeah. So in the Library of Babel, we're going to talk about the philosophical and scientific implications of this thought experiment later on in the episode. But first, we just want to kind of explore what this, this concept entails. And there are definitely a lot of ironies and absurdities in Borges' story. So mm-hmm. I don't think he was trying to create something that was I mean, I feel kind of absurd saying this, but I don't think he was trying to create something realistic. No, I mean, I mean, and really you you run into a lot of 
problems trying to even fathom it as a real place because it is so vast. Mm-hmm. Because as we we discussed in our um, you know hopefully entertaining uh, intro here, it contains not only all books but all possible books. Right. So let's get into the actual numbers of what this library would entail as described in the story. So as Borges writes, each book in this library contains 410 pages. Each page has 40 lines and each line has approximately 80 black letters, just printed letters. And you can actually work out the math from this. So all the books consist of the same 25 elements for characters. They've got a space, a period, a comma, and 22 letters of the alphabet. The only variation is in the arrangement of these 25 characters. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, that they're, you know, less than the total number of uh, letters in our alphabet. Well, you know, some letters are kind of redundant, aren't they? (laughs) Why do we need a C? Why not just a K and an S? Right. But no two books in the library are exactly the same. So if the books don't duplicate one another and we know the starting conditions, we can actually calculate the number of books that would be in the library. So if there's 80 characters per line, 40 lines per page times 410 pages per book, that's 1,312,000 characters per book. And with 25 possible characters and and 1,312,000 characters per book, we know that there have to be 25 to the 1,312th power books. That is a number that is so big that if you can count to it, you automatically become the god of your local galaxy cluster. <laughs> so so the, the basic idea here, I'm, I'm sure there's another um, metaphor, a little uh, nonsensical um, uh, story that often comes to mind, and that is the idea of the, the the monkeys banging yes. on typewriters. I'm going to get into that in a bit. Creating gibberish and eventually recreating the works of Shakespeare. Right. Now, it, the, it's sort of analogous. If the monkeys could only uh, pound out one book-length work of gibberish at a time. Mm-hmm. And, and avoid complete repetition. Right. And never do the same thing twice. Yeah. Eventually, they'd get to Shakespeare. But, uh, so the library contains all books there could possibly be. So in addition to just trying to imagine what this is like, in addition to the indefinite numbers of books full of random gibberish, which would be almost all the books, there are also perfect copies of all books that already exist in reality. So Mm -hmm. there's a perfect copy of all the books in the Twilight series. Now, if you're worrying, wait a minute, uh, I know of some books that are more than 410 pages, too long to be reproduced. Not so, actually, because there's a book that contains its exact first 410 pages and then another book that contains whatever happens after that, stretching into as many volumes as you need. Plus, all books that exist in reality would be there with every possible combination of typographical errors that there could be. So there's a book that's a perfect copy of Jane Eyre, except every instance of Mr. Rochester's name is replaced with the words, a crocodile of immense girth. (laughs) There is also a copy of Hamlet that reads normally, except for the one line, one change, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your vaping newsletter. It also contains a perfectly accurate autobiography of your life, as we mentioned, including all the events that haven't happened yet. It contains lots of almost perfect autobiographies of your life, but containing a few lies. It contains all books explaining the perfect solutions to all the world's most vexing problems. If we could only find those books and know them when we see them, then we'd have the solutions to all those problems. In the story, all these books exist in the library, but they represent such a tiny fraction of the total possible combinations of symbols that you could wander your whole life through the library and probably not expect to find any lengthy combination of words that made any grammatical sense. Yeah, I mean, it. it I mean, it's easy for all of us to, to just really go wild imagining this. I mean, just think of think of your favorite book in the world and just imagine then that there are so many different versions of it that are a little bit less good. Mm-hmm. They maybe have a few different um, typos in them in it, uh, a few different character changes. Then there are versions of it that are even better. Mm-hmm. There's even an, like a, a an ideal version of it, a perfect version. There is a version of your favorite book that you yourself would 
perhaps love even more because it's a little more in tune with your expectations. Right. And all that fan fiction you write, that's mm-hmm. already in the library. Yeah. It's there. Plus all the changes you could have made to make it, you know, less of a travesty. But is it all on the same shelf? No. Is it all in the same hexagon? No, probably not, because it's arranged in random order, right. right? making it even more frustrating to try to find anything, though not necessarily even more frustrating, because if you try to imagine what navigating the Library of Babel would be like if it were organized in some alphabetical fashion, you might be trapped in the A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A section <laughs> of the library your entire life. Yeah, and you would just be physically unable to traverse that area and get to the sensible books. Right. Yeah. So I'd actually prefer a randomized library to being stuck uh, in a sea of A's that I could never escape from no matter how long I walked. <laughs> you know, um, of course, this has been such a highly influential book. It's referenced in a number of different works. Um, you mean the Library of the, the Library Story. of Babel? Yeah. So, like a lot of people probably recognize it from Umberto Eco's masterful Name of the Rose, where an actual library in an Italian monastery is uh, is modeled on this. Yeah, um, there are aspects of it that I, I believe are utilized in uh, uh, House of Leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's also a Stephen King short story. I don't know if you've read this one uh, titled Ur that came out. It was only for Kindle. I don't think so. Huh. No. It's about a man who obtains a pink Kindle and it turns out to be a Kindle from another. No, uni- I haven't universe, read this. And it gives him access not only to the Kindle store in our universe, but also to Kindle stores in alternate universes. <laughs> so he's able to access books by authors he loves that have not yet been written or that that just were not written in our world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a sense, it's a, it's an interesting play on the Library of Babel. You know, if you want to get a sense of what it would be like to actually inhabit this universe, the Library of Babel, and just start pulling books off the shelf, there is a tool you can use. A Brooklyn author named Jonathan Basile has created a virtual version. You can go to it, libraryofbabel.info. Mm-hmm. You can go explore this at any time, and it's great fun for a few minutes until you, you get just buried under the noise of nonsense, hiding all potential information. So you're, you're able to pull up titles of books, hypothetical? Yeah, you yeah. can, you can go pull up a shelf of mm-hmm. the library by name. Uh, which w- I guess it generates the text that would be under that randomized section of the library, and you can pull out some books and look at what's inside them. Huh. And uh, th- are there any NPCs here? No, not that I know of. I don't know. I, have, I haven't played with it long enough. But wouldn't it be great if some purifiers come by and start trying to burn the books you're reading? Now, now that reminds me, we should say a little bit more about the story. What, who were the characters who occupied this library? Oh, yeah. And, and this is this is tremendous fun. Um, so uh, first and foremost, uh, there are the librarians. Right. And the, 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 the narrator, the main character, if you can even call them that in the story, uh, is a librarian. Right. So they're given the impossible task of caring for the library, exploring it, and they're generally an overworked and just suicidal lot. Uh, plus they have to contend with all the other weird wanderers that are out there amid the hexagons. Such as? Oh, well, uh, there are the inquisitors, and these are official searchers. But they don't really seem to make much progress. Now, it's kind of vague in the story exactly what they're doing. I assume they are somehow searching for books that make sense or mm-hmm. books of some kind of value. Right. Which are just impossible to come by. Yeah, and I believe there's a sense, too, that they're, they're separate from the librarians. It's almost like an academic versus a governmental body. Here. Yeah. So the librarians and the inquisitors are kind of, it seems like their jobs should be similar, but they have different philosophical aims. Okay. What else? Then we have the purifiers, who we alluded to already. And these, uh, this is a sect that traverse the library, and they destroy any book that they deem nonsensical. So that would be pretty much all books. Yes. But it could also mean, I mean, I, I wonder, t- it's, it's it's alluded to as well that, that maybe they're not the ones to judge. How are Maybe a book that seems like nonsense is not nonsense. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're burning a bunch of Seuss and E.E. Cummings, and they don't even realize it. Yeah. Uh, but mainly they are in search of something known as the Crimson Hexagon. Yeah, now we alluded to this at the beginning, but Robert, what is the Crimson Hexagon? Because it sounds alluring. Oh, yes. It is a crimson room, a crimson hexagon within the library. Rumored and to exist. Rumored should, to exist, yes. No, nobody has actually seen it that, that we know of. Uh, and it contains, quote, books smaller than natural books, books omnipotent, 
illustrated and magical. Mm. So in other words, this is where you'd find the real functional copies of various grimoires, including the real Necronomicon, uh, the real Book of Sand, which, is, by the way, is, a, is an infinite book of that uh, p- factors into another Borges story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would find just all these books of power and meaning, books that answer our big questions. Like this is, this is like a a mythological center for the library, a place of order and answer. Yeah, and it gives many people in the library hope when they're traversing an otherwise unbroken sea of nonsense and gibberish. Yeah, and I'll tell you one book that might be in the Crimson Hexagon mm-hmm. if it exists. Or might be elsewhere is, is this. Okay. So since the Library of Babel contains all possible books, that means it must contain a book or books about the library itself. It must contain a book that tells the reader how to find what you want. Exactly. It lays a it all out. Catalog or guide for the library itself. Yeah. Like a, yeah, a tourist guide. So even though that book has not been found, it is rumored that uh, there must exist someone known as the bookman, that the bookman has actually uh, found that book that is, quote, the cipher and perfect compendium of all possible books. The bookman has read this book and wanders the library as a godlike librarian, worshipped, quested after, and perhaps even prayed to. So this is a... A, a god figure, a really kind of a, a Christ figure yeah. who wanders the library of Babel and everyone wants to find this gentleman and meet him so that they might too know where they can uh, find their answers. In a way, it, it, in a way it's like the perfect holy man, right? Like the, the, the order of the library of Babel is beyond us. Right. We cannot relate to it, but we can relate to an individual. So if there's an individual who can grasp this vastness, then let us speak to him, right? Now, it probably won't be lost on all the parallels to religious figures and prophets like like you were Mm -hmm. mentioning, you know, this Christ figure. But I would say also that the book man not need not necessarily be a man. I would suspect that it's more likely a book woman because the men (laughs) of this library are way too caught up in suicides and murders. And Mm -hmm. uh, man, it just seems like it is not a nice thing to be uh, to be a a sole male wandering this library. Yeah, it makes me think of the. The back in the days when you had the big bookstores everywhere, mm-hmm. you would have like the the kind of uh, sketchy dudes who would hang out in the photography book section. Yep. Um, that is not a sect that is mentioned by <laughs> Borges, but I can only imagine that they're out there picking up various books and trying to sneak off to the bathroom with them. Though there is a sense of pervasive suicidal melancholy throughout yes. the library. Because after a while, it just seems to grind on you that you can't find the answers you're looking for. You can't find the books that you're looking for. And then you have to contend with... Young people who wander in to worship and kiss the books, uh, various heretics, pilgrims, again, like people looking for alternate gospels, mm-hmm. brigands, suicides, all of this going on. And you're just a simple librarian trying to do your job. It's just too much. Now, a fact that I found interesting when I was reading about Borges' life was that Borges was himself a librarian mm. at multiple different times in his life. Uh, for almost a decade, beginning in around 1937 or 1938, Borges worked in a small library in Buenos Aires. And this time at the library would include the time of publication for the Library of Babel, which uh, he first published in 1941. I figured out which library it was, by the way, and I looked it up, and, and the, the scale is not what you would expect. I think I might have mentioned that earlier. Earlier, but uh, given the story, it's a very small, quaint little library with a modest collection of books. But also in 1938, Borges, I uh, read, experienced a head wound, which led to blood poisoning, which in turn made him very feeble and he feared losing his sanity. And so Bo- Borges was eventually dismissed from his library position when uh, Juan Perón came to power in Argentina in, I think, 1945 or 46. And he, uh, Borges had supported the Allies during World War II. He opposed Nazi Germany. And he was also at the time opposed to Perón's authoritarian sympathies. So in retaliation, Perón demoted Borges to the job title of poultry inspector. Oh. Borges was not a fan of this move, but later he was uh, again given a library position as director of the Argentine National Library in 1955. But I do wonder to what extent his experiences among the books, even if it was truly a modest collection of books, led to his his dreaming of the Library of Babel. 
Yeah, perhaps a, a lot of it too came from him not only, you know, not only encountering books in this bookstore, in the libraries, in his personal collection, but also reading about other books, like seeing the names of these other books. It's, it's, it's hard, you know, just looking through a card catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I guess today we get a, a sense of such a vast library just when we're going through an online database of books, be it a library system or Amazon. Uh, and, uh, and I can, I can see even with, with older catalog systems where one might have that experience, especially if one is a true lover of books as, uh, as Borges, you know, definitely was. Yeah. But of course, the Library of Babel is more than just an interesting short story, right? It's become this door that we can walk through to think about the nature of information and scale, numerical scale in the universe, infinity, the relationship between information and physicality, and a very useful model for philosophers, scientists, and thinkers of all kinds. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back from the break, we are going to learn more about the implications of the Library of Babel as a thought experiment. So... The characters in the Library of Babel, they all seem to be searching for meaning, right? Yeah. They're, they're living in this vast library of nonsense. It's full of gibberish everywhere, and they want to find books that have some kind of significance. So I, I think it's quite clear that in many ways this story is an analogy for the search of meaning, uh, the search for meaning. Sorry. Imagine that feeling of knowing that there were already in existence books that explained the true origin and purpose of the universe, uh, if there is such a thing, of mm-hmm. course, and the origin and purpose of everything in the universe, including your own existence. And I want to read another quote from the story. Quote, That unbridled hopefulness was succeeded, naturally enough, by a similarly disproportionate depression. The certainty that some bookshelf in some hexagon contained precious books, yet that those precious books were forever out of reach, was almost unbearable. One blasphemous sect proposed that the searches be discontinued and that all men shuffle letters and symbols until those canonical books, through some um, improbable stroke of chance, had been constructed. The authorities were forced to issue strict orders. The sect disappeared, but in my childhood I have seen old men who for long periods would hide in the latrines with metal discs and a forbidden dice cup, feebly mimicking the divine order. Hmm. I love something about this little section of the story, because notice here the similarity with something you already brought up, Robert, the the infinite monkey theorem, right? The idea that you've got a gang of monkeys and you put them in front of typewriters and they just hit keys on the typewriters at random. Now, given infinite time, it's often said that these monkeys will produce specified works of literature, such as the complete works of Shakespeare. Right. Or Of course, they would need vast periods of time. I mean, yes. One of the, the, yeah. the key uh, factors here. And it, that that's not dependent on what the work is, like Shakespeare or whatever. They could be trying to create the complete works of Anne Rice. Yeah. And the, the infinite time parameter is crucial because in reality, such a scenario would probably not produce a single page of grammatically meaningful English within the total age of the universe. It's just you know, uh, random combinatrix are not very forgiving. But in the Borges story, there's this blasphemous sect he talks about who wants to try to create precious and meaningful books by randomly generating volumes with something kind of like a Ouija board and a pair of dice. Yeah, almost like a like a code cracking program. Right. But it doesn't fundamentally alter our predicament in the search for meaning. Uh, only the observer's level of personal activity within it. So the librarians in the Library of Babel are like the observer watching the monkeys type, waiting for Mm -hmm. them to produce Shakespeare. They're passively receiving all of this random information, waiting for something of significance to come out. The blasphemous sect, the people rolling the dice with the Ouija board, they're just more like being the monkey sitting at the typewriter randomly typing text. Right. It doesn't change the odds that you'll come across something of significance, but maybe it does make a psychological difference if you yourself are the creator versus re- passively receiving what already exists around you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really like the, the members of the blasphemous sect are playing God. They're doing the work of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of, of a creator entity in this uh, scenario, but, um, they're bound by 
mortal or semi-mortal experience. So uh, it, it really amounts to the same thing. They're just as lost in the in the library, yeah. except it's a a library of their their own creation. Well, in the cosmological sense, how, how similar is the Library of Babel to the universe we actually inhabit, and what uh, what what similarities and differences could we observe? Well. If we look at the library as a metaphor for cosmos, and it, and it seems one of uh, one of Borges' intents. I mean, he says in the first yeah, line that, that the, it is universe, the universe, yeah. the universe is the library. Yeah, so you could argue that it is his central intent. Uh, certainly, uh, in this case, it lines up rather nicely with uh, the cosmological principle: mm-hmm. the idea that matter in the universe is homogeneous and isotropic when averaged out over very large scales. As a major principle that speaks to the composition of the universe, and it helps uh, serve as the basis for the Big Bang uh, theory here. It's kind of hard to imagine living on Earth as we do and not seeing really anywhere else in the universe that's as hospitable as Earth, yeah. that the universe is homogenous. Yeah. You know, but but yeah, it's talking about scale there over scale. You could say it is homogenous, even if we're sort of living in the book that makes sense. Right. Well, like we you could almost say that like we are living. It's it's difficult, right? Because it's like we are we are the book. Yeah. That makes sense. We are the book that we can understand. And we just according to us, according to us (laughs) and, and by by amazing fortune, we are in the hexagon that contains that book. And then so it's easy to think it's and certainly we've from a cosmological perspective, we've fallen into this trap many times where we think, well, this is the center. Yeah, this is we are living in the crimson hexagon. Right. Uh, and there's a you know, there's a whole uh, discipline in, in cosmology is about just reminding everyone that we do not live in the hexagonal right uh, in the crimson hexagon yeah not every hexagon that contains a basically sensical operation manual for a vcr mm-hmm. is the crimson hexagon yeah there's not there's nothing privileged about the human condition about and about the conditions of earth um like the universe too all the characters that in this story that are considering the library of Babel are within the library of Babel. They don't step yeah. outside of it. They don't, they don't wander back to the surface of some, you know, Dungeons and Dragons type realm and then think about it again and then go back in. It's not like in say, uh, uh, the novel house of leaves where they're, they're venturing from this house into this realm of infinite corridors. Yeah. There is no house to return to. So quest as they might to understand the shape and nature of the library, they cannot step beyond the library for an outside outside understanding of what they're in. They cannot step beyond the borders of cosmos. I mean, we can barely step beyond the borders of the human experience. We yeah. have this huge problem just trying to to comprehend consciousness and the and and the the functionality of the human mind. It's it, you're trapped within the form you're trying to understand. Yeah, but the Library of Babel also seems like it has some metaphorical significance in our quest for knowledge. Yeah. I mean, the idea here that complete knowledge seems impossible. You can believe in the book man and the crimson hexagon all you want, but they remain ever outside your grasp. There is no center. There's no privileged area or privileged knowledge. Right. The story uh, also, uh, uh, according to uh, writer uh, Marcelo Gleiser, uh, seems a commentary on reductionism. Okay. So we can know all the characters that comprise uh, the works in the books, like identifying the building blocks of nature, right? Mm -hmm. But does that bring us any closer to understanding the fundamental nature of the universe or the library? No. No, not really. Yeah. Yeah. and of course, in all of this, I can't help but think of um, a subject we've discussed in the past here on the show, uh, Plato's theory of forms, right? Yeah. The idea that um, that there's an ideal version of everything that exists beyond our grasp, according to Plato, like essentially in another realm. Yeah. So there would be, in theory, an ideal form of every book that's ever been written in the Library of Babel, right? But we can spend an eternity, uh, encounter an eternity of alternate versions and never happen upon the perfect form. It doesn't quite exist outside the Library of Babel, however, uh, though I wonder if you could sort of cobble that idea together with the Crimson Hexagon. Maybe that's what the Crimson Hexagon also encompasses, the idea that there's a place where all the ideals are represented. Well, this brings up something that I wanted to talk about, which is the difference between being able to generate 
a, a precious or significant book and the ability to recognize it when you see mm. it. Uh, this sort of goes back to our uh, P versus NP discussion, right. you know, the, the search for algorithms. Like there are certain problem solving techniques that you can check to see if you got the right answer, but you can't as quickly generate the right answer. And I, you know, I, I wonder if are books the same way, like what is the relationship between insight and time mm-hmm. given infinite time? Could any person who could recognize a precious book also generate that same precious book? I don't know, but uh it, it kind of makes me wonder, like the yeah. library of Babel brings up these quite. So you're searching through all the shelves Mm-hmm. And you, you eventually come across a book that you know is a meaningful and significant book that's full of true things, full of great creativity, full of beauty and insight. It's a good thing that you found it. If you know that thing when you see it, would you be able to create that thing if there were no constraints on you whatsoever? It's like it, to come back to say something like Dune, right? Yeah. Like how would, would I be able to tell if I found a copy of Dune in the library that is that, that exceeds the original. All I have is the version that we have in our reality. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm a big fan of that. But who's to say that that's anywhere close to the ideal version of it? You know, who, who can make that judgment? Yeah. And, and then it also gets into sort of the privilege, like we, we're going to have a bias towards what we already know, what we already have, which is, which gets involved in, uh, in cosmology again, because we're basing everything on this one model of, uh, of life, this one model of, uh, uh that we have in earth and all of the, the life that has evolved here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have nothing else to base it on. We only have this copy of Dune. <laughs> alas, alas that we have but one reality of Dune to draw from. Shia Lud be praised. <laughs> All right, we need to take another really quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the Library of Babel as applied to biology and genetics. All right, we're back. All right. So as uh, the Library of Babel is uh, essentially all about vast quantities of randomized information and the occasional emergence of books from that data sea, uh, it should come as no surprise that uh, Borges' fantastic library is of use in fathoming the complexity of biology and genetics. Yeah. Now, I've read about this idea in a couple of different books by the uh, philo- the American philosopher and cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett. He wrote about this in Darwin's Dangerous Idea, which came out in the 90s. And- and he also wrote a chapter about it in his book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. And I, I always found this comparison very interesting, but maybe maybe you can illuminate us, Robert. Okay. What, what application does the Library of Babel have to the genes that build our bodies? Well, uh, let me read a, a quick quote here from, uh, from Dennett that I think uh, helps to illuminate this. Quote, the actual genomes that have ever existed are a vanishingly small subset of the uh, combinatorially possible genomes, just as the actual books in the world's libraries are a vanishingly small subset of the books in the imaginary library of Babel. Yeah, so Dennett actually puts together an alternate version of the library. He just sub- substitutes in some alternate numbers right. uh, and does some number crunching. But I think it's actually interesting what he comes up with. Yeah, uh, for starters, he, he does some, some fun number crunching on the Library of Babel itself. Mm-hmm. Um, here, here's just a quick quote from this. Uh, and again, we're going to throw some numbers at you here, but uh, I think it's worth it. It says, suppose that each book is 500 pages long, and each page consists of 40 lines of 50 spaces. So there are 2,000 character spaces per page. Each space either is blank or has a character printed on it, chosen from a set of 100. Somewhere in the Library of Babel is a volume consisting entirely of blank pages, and another volume is all question marks. But the vast majority consists of typographical gibberish. No rules of spelling or grammar to say nothing of sense prohibit the inclusion of a volume. 500 pages times 2,000 characters per page gives uh, 1 million character spaces per book. So there are 100 to the 1 millionth power books in the Library of Babel. Since it is estimated that there are only 100 to the 40th, give or take a few particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons, in the region of the universe we can observe, the Library of Babel is not remotely a physically possible object. But thanks to the strict rules with which Borges constructed it in his imagination, we can think about it clearly. 
So I, I, I like, I, I like how he sort of reigns it. Well, he doesn't rein it in, but how he, well, he crunches the numbers of it and, and just lays out the fact that this could not exist in the physical universe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- there is not space yeah. in the universe for it. And yet it is still arguably a finite object. Oh, not arguably. It's yeah. definitely mm-hmm. finite. But uh, well, but that's the thing. It's finite in a way like there. And certainly this is a, a subject we've covered in other episodes on, on the nature of infinity. Yeah. But there are, of course, different types of infinity. Yeah. And so it's this, physically finite. It's physically finite, but it is from a, a human perspective, it might as well be infinite. Well, you can make the case that while it is physically finite in that there are a limited number of books, however vast, you know, impossibly vast to contain in the real universe, there there are a actually limited number of books, but there might not be a limited amount of information hmm. because if you follow this, uh, this same strategy we mentioned earlier of allowing one book's contents to spill over into another volume, mm-hmm. and given the fact that all volumes possible to represent our present, meaning all unfinished ideas will be continued into other ideas, there is potentially limitless information in the limited library of Babel. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I can't help but think of the infinity hotel analogy, like yeah. the idea that like an, an infinite number of people show up to a hotel and then another infinite number show up on another bus. Yeah. Um, what I mean, what what do you do about books that themselves are infinite? What do you do about Borges, the book of sands, which is a book that is that that is is endless? Mm-hmm. How many books then does that contain? Like trying to shelve the book of sand uh in the Library of Babel is kind of like a, a busload of infinite hotel guests showing up at the Infinity Hotel. Well, I would say that the Library of Babel itself is sort of an argument that there could not be such a thing as an infinite book. Mm-hmm. That there, there, there are books that are so vast as to, you know, stifle our comprehension. Mm-hmm. But if you think of the Library of Babel itself as one book that you can just move the pages around right. as much yeah. as you want. All possible representations of all possible characters are there, but the book is finite. That's true. That's a good point. Uh, but let's let's bring it back to Dennett. So Dennett proposes a variation on the Library of Babel that he calls the Library of Mendel, named after Men- the Mendel famous of Mendelian genetics. And it's a library that contains all possible genomes. So if we assume that the library of Mendel is composed of descriptions of genomes, then right, not not the molecules right. themselves, <laughs> but it, the the coding that would represent what is contained right. in your genome, the recipes. Yeah. Um, if that's the case, then you could you could argue that well, they're actually already part of the library of Babel, uh, as the standard code for DNA descriptions consists of the characters A, C, G, and T for adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. Uh, these are the four nucleotides that compose the letters of the DNA alphabet. Right. So if you're going to spell out a representation of your genome, you'd use those four letters. So since those are letters that are already part of the alphabet that makes the Library of Babel, the Library of Mendel is a subset of the Library of Babel. Yeah. And uh, according to Dennett, you need to devote 3,000 of the 500-page volumes in the Library of Babel just to cover the human genome, right. which really... Library of Babel, that's not really a problem. Uh, There's <laughs> right. room, as we've discussed. Um, however, I hope that the purifiers in this case haven't been destroying these copies. You think they, they would? Like yeah. they come across a book that's just a bunch of A, C, T, and G. What, what, what use is this? Yeah, it looks like more gibberish, but Burn they're really it. just burning the Library of Mendel volume after volume. <laughs> and who knows? We might need those someday. Well, that sort of highlights another thing about the Library of Babel, which is, uh, how do you necessarily know when you've come across something of significance? Like we've been assuming mm-hmm. that you would know a book of significance or preciousness when you found it, but it might be encoding something for the code for which you cannot read. That's true. So if, if we're, we're lining up the library of Mendel with the library of Babel or within it, um, this means that not only would the library of Mendel have all genomes, and it would also have all possible genomes within its frame of reference. Um, so as Dennett puts it, we're forced to, quote, start in the middle. And ha- we have only the current state of evolved biology to consider, as well as the terrestrial model. But then there are going to be all these other possibilities as well. Yeah. So what what happens on Earth is not 
that you look around and you find all possible variations on all possible genes mm-hmm. in, uh, in, or actually with the library of Mendel, it'd be all possible sequences of nucleotides and mm-hmm. even more minute than genes. Um, you don't see that in nature. In fact, the nature that exists is a very tiny subset of the library of Mendel. That's right. And then there, there's so much in the Library of Mendel that, like the Library of Babel, would just be nonsense. Um, the, the vast majority of it is going to be uh, just blueprint, blueprints for lifelessness. Yeah. In quoting Richard Dawkins, he says, quote, there are many more ways of being dead or not alive than ways of being alive. I think that's a good quote, yeah. and that makes sense. I mean, most recipes you could come up with for building a building are not actually going to be structurally viable. Most recipes mm-hmm. you could come up with for, you know, if you're just combining random chemicals to make food, most of it would not be edible. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, imagine, like, we haven't even talked about this, or I hadn't really thought about it till now, but imagine cookbooks. In the Library of Babel. Yeah. The baking cookbook specifically. So many of these recipes, the vast majority of the recipes are just going to be garbage. Create, right. Like creating not even like the bread doesn't rise. The right. dough just just goops there at the bottom of the pan. But what about the ones that are perfectly excellent cookbooks, except they all tell you to add one bucket of cigarette butts to your <laughs> recipe every time? Yeah. Or everything is delicious, but also poisoned. Right. Yeah. But like many of the books in the Library of Babel, I digress. Yeah. Well, so the Library of Mendel, as Dennett uh, understands it, is sort of what he would call universal design space, which is this multidimensional space that is, how would you describe it, Robert? Um, and and I, this is my understanding, so uh-huh. I might, might have it wrong. But the way I keep thinking of it as it's that black bed uh, on the light bright, okay, in which you put the pegs and stuff begins to light up. And, and essentially, if you took a light bright and you made the tree of life on it, mm-hmm. uh, that's what uh, the universal design space is. Well, right. It's the possible design mm-hmm. space for things made out of DNA in the way we understand DNA. And like we said, that contains tons and tons of possible combinations that don't lead to anything like what we would call life or successful life. Right. And uh, also this universal design space would contain all actual complex phenomena, both biological designs and cultural designs. So it would contain bacteria, apes, humans, books about apes, jokes about apes, great ape movies, bad ape movies, (laughs) etc. Yeah, I love the way that this connects information at all levels. So Mm -hmm. within the Library of Babel, you have both the recipe for making my genome. So you could say uh, uh, physical information in a way, the information contained in the molecules, but also every story I've ever written, which you could consider part of my genetic phenotype, right? It's the molecules in my DNA have in combination with external circumstances ultimately led to the creation of every bit of intellectual work I've ever done. And this is the same for all of us. And both are subsets of the Library of Babel. Yeah. I'm going to read another quick quote from uh, Dennett here. According to Darwin's dangerous idea, all possible explorations of design space are connected. Not only all your children and your children's children, but all your brain children and your brain children's brain children must grow from the common stock of design elements, genes and memes that have so far been accumulated and conserved by the inexorable lifting algorithms, the ramps and cranes and cranes atop cranes of natural selection and its products. Yeah. And just to explain really quick there, Dennett, uh, when he talks about cranes, he has this idea of, uh, design being the difference between, uh, the, the metaphors of cranes and the metaphors of skyhooks. Okay. Uh, skyhooks are these ideas that he thinks about, uh, design coming from the top down, reaching in and, and, uh, making something without any previous precedent, whereas cranes are things that build from the ground up and they can mm-hmm. c- become higher and higher based on bases that have already been built. The whole standing on the backbone on the backs of giants. Yeah, exactly. Bit, right? So yeah. so natural selection is a crane algorithm, mm-hmm. as he would describe it as something that builds from the ground up. OK, so thinking of the Library of Babel or the Library of Mendel as spaces of possibility that are different than the spaces of what can actually be achieved in terms of living organisms, 
I, I think it's interesting that Dennett goes on to cons- he puts together this diagram that's concentric circles of different types of possibility that the Library of Babel and the Library of Mendel help us think about. And I, I like this because I think possibility is a word that very often gets equivocated on mm-hmm. in our conversation. So think about these concentric circles of possibility. It's like a Venn diagram, but each circle's inside the bigger one. So the smallest circle in the middle is what's actually true. So the the example he gives is President Clinton. There has been a real President Clinton. That actually happened. Mm-hmm. It's true. We might even get another one. Maybe. So, But then there is historical possibility, right? President Goldwater could have happened, but given historical circumstances, it didn't. Uh, the, the, all of the, all of the pieces were there that it seemed like it could have happened. It's just not how the universe went. Uh, then there is biological possibility. That's a bigger circle, which the example he gives is striped giraffe. Could have happened given what's possible with life on earth, but it didn't. Now, technically we do have okapis. Yeah. Uh, which, um, which are not striped giraffes, uh-huh. but they are kind of a, they're related to giraffes and are kind of like a, a forest giraffe with some zebra-esque stripes. On well, body. you know, that, that's a, a danger we always play with when we enter the realm of talking about what's possible. <laughs> we don't even always know what's really happened. Yeah. Uh, but then bigger than biological possibility is physical possibility. But the example he gives is a flying horse. So doesn't violate the laws of physics is just, you know, it's not something that you're going to see in the biological world. It's kind of like getting into our flying fish uh, episode where we talked about, you know, the, the problem with, first of all, recognizing the fact that there could be a fish biologically with wings that could fly uh-huh. and not just glide across the water. And yet it does not exist. Right. And then finally, the biggest circle of possibility is logical possibility, which is Superman. So Superman is also not physically possible. It violates the laws of physics, but it's not logically impossible because it doesn't entail a logical contradiction. It doesn't entail both A and not A. Okay. So you could say it's possible. And I I think that uh, it's interesting because everything that is logically possible is in the Library of Babel, right? Yeah. All descriptions that are logically possible are in the Library of Babel. And and as a subset, every description that's physically possible in terms of the the nucleotides listed is in the Library of Mendel. But then the subset of that, everything that's biologically possible is the the biology that we actually see or that could actually evolve from the tree of life as it exists today. Hmm. But I want to move on to another application of the Library of Babel. And Good, that's, because I think we were about to, about to get lost within the hexagons. <laughs> uh, and, and that's uh, the work of the American philosopher and logician uh, W.V.O. Quine. So Quine wrote a very short piece on the Library of Babel called the Universal Library Essay. And I, I recommend you can check this out yourself because it's incredibly short. Uh, very concise. So I want to read a quote from it where Quine also, uh, he sort of reformulates the library in the same way Dennett did, just playing around with some numbers to get different numbers, but same principle. Quine says, at 2,000 characters to the page, we get 500,000 to the 250-page volume. So with, say, 80 capitals and smalls and other marks to choose from, I wonder what those other marks are, maybe a lot of hashtags, uh, we arrive at the 500,000th power of 80 as the total number of books in the library. I gather that there is not room in the present phase of our expanding universe on present estimates for more than a negligible fraction of the collection Numbers are cheap. So he's arrived at the same conclusion as others before. This wouldn't fit in the universe. And I like the expression numbers are cheap, especially when you have notation like exponential notation. Mm-hmm. You can write out a number like 25 to the one million three hundred and twelve thousandth power. But just writing that on the page, it's a kind of small marking notation, but it denotes something that could not possibly be contained right. in the universe. But Quine draws us back to something we've mentioned before. The number of books in the library, while bigger than could be contained, is not infinite. It's definitely finite. At a certain point, you could catalog every possible book in the Library of Babel, just not in this universe. And yet, quote, the entire and ultimate truth about everything is printed in full in that library, after all, insofar as it can be put into words at all. 
every true statement and every false statement you could possibly make are in the library. Hmm. And yet the library is finite. So, for instance, there there is that mythical or not mythical, but at least an elusive book or series of books that uh, that outline the location of all the books in the Library of Babel. Yeah. But then there are all possible uh, inferior copies and misleading copies of right. that same series, long, 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 long series of books yeah. uh, that that uh, that offer to show you where everything is and don't. There's the catalog that tells you to dive over the spiral staircase railing and, and just fall until yeah. you come to the Crimson Hexagon. And it's lying to you because the problem is you'll pretty much keep falling forever. Oh, wow. And we haven't even gotten to how the toilets work here. Like, that's not covered in Borges' book at all. How? <laughs> what's the plumbing like? But it is covered in some book in the Library of some, Babel. Yeah, there is a book in the library that just deals exhaustively. Explains where the plumbing goes. Does it? I wonder where it goes. If there's an end to the Library of Babel, then there is an end to those interconnected pipes that carry all the uh, the fecal matter and urine away, right? And of course, the wadded up pieces of of uh, nonsense books that uh, are being used for toilet paper. Uh, all of the sewage plumbing goes directly to the hexagon housing. <laughs> unauthorized biographies of celebrities who recently passed away. <laughs> well, you say that, uh, Joe, but remember, uh, in the Library of Babel, there is an unauthorized uh, autobiography of, say, Heath Ledger that is Wait. not that is not only good. But it is great. An unauthorized autobiography. Yes. What? Well, yeah, are possible. It would be there in the. Yeah, I meant to say Babel. biography, but the, but that's the thing. Any mistake I make in speaking, the Library of Babel has me covered. It exists. Is it factual? <laughs> is it? Is there truth in it? I don't know, but it could still be entertaining. <laughs> Maybe it's unauthorized by the Heath Ledger. Of our universe, mm-hmm. but it was, but it is authorized by the Heath Ledger of an alternate universe. Yeah, well, that would be there, wouldn't it? Okay, so I got to bring it back to Quine. Okay, so back to Quine. We we've mentioned a couple times now that there's this principle that, uh, well, what if a book takes more than 410 pages to express? You know, mm-hmm. that can't be in the library, but it can be because it gets picked up right where it left off in a second volume yeah. and a third if necessary and so on. And all those volumes are in the library. So you have like Shogun volume one, Shogun volume two. Yeah, it never ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but given this principle that messages can be spread across multiple volumes, Quine realizes that you can use a form of Morse code to massively downsize the library to exactly two books with one page each. One book is a single page with a dash, and the other is a single page with a dot. And by reading these books back and forth in various orders, you can code any alphabetic sequence hmm. in a simplified form of Morse code. Now, the library has massively shrunk in size, but it has the exact same encoding power if you were to, you know, if you're to actually map out the combinations and do all of the same possible combinations. Hmm. Huh. But let's think about it another way. You can replace the dot and the dash with a zero and a one, or of course an on and an off switch. In other words, binary code. And your universal library has become the same type of information storage system that exists inside your computer. Hmm. And this illuminates a principle that Alan Turing and others observed about the binary computer. It's universal. Like any information or operation that can be represented in code, which potentially is all information or operations, depending on you know, your philosophical orientation to that question, it can be res- uh, represented by a universal binary machine. So on, on one hand, this seems to sort of violate the allure of the library, right? In the Library of Babel, there are already in existence the precious books. They're already out there, the books of ultimate potential beauty and truth, physically exist, we just have to find them. But in the binary universal library, we'd have to encode those books ourselves. But maybe this disconnect sort of highlights an inherent irony in the mathematics of the Library of Babel. Those books exist in the Library of Babel, but for any individual librarian, they will never, ever be found. We would be, as we said, extremely lucky to discover a book with one ten-word long sentence that makes sense. Huh. 
So we're sort of back to the monkeys with typewriters. In the Library of Babel, you're watching the monkeys type at random and hoping they give you the complete works of Shakespeare, but they're never going to do it. In Quine's two-volume library, you yourself are the monkey typing at random. It makes no difference in terms of the knowledge discovered, just how it feels to be a part of the discovery system. Hmm. So what you need is an interface on top of Quine's system. Such, such as, say, a pink Kindle mm-hmm. that allows you <laughs> right. to instantly search out the books you want um, from all the possible uh, um, uh, books out there in the library. Right. Now, this is, of course, a very different way than the way we actually generate books in reality, which is in reality, we use heuristic shortcuts of intelligence, human brain power, creativity to try to limit the size of the total number of possible books and only generate books that more or less make sense, at mm-hmm. least hopefully in the author's mind. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, you're, you're the author's only writing, you know, six to eight versions of that book. Right. But when when limiting the noise like that, we are also limiting the signal. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a give and take. So by by cutting out all of the nonsense books, we massively reduce our searching for significance project. But we also eliminate possibly the most precious books out there because we just didn't think to create them. Yeah. Or we thought to create them and then who has time, right? Right. <laughs> Isn't that funny that it, the Library of Babel makes me feel even worse about uh, about all of the books I want to read and don't get around to reading because we don't live in the Library of Babel. We live in, uh, a, well, you could say we live in a version of the Library of Babel that is the universe. But in terms of the readable library of books available to us, it's not the Library of Babel. It's mostly books that just make sense. And I still don't get to all the books that I should be reading. Yeah. Not only does it contain all the books you should be reading all the books you want to read. It contains all the books you could have written, all the books you could write in your life, which is a, it's kind of a, a very heartbreaking thing to think of as a writer. Yeah. Like when you didn't have time to write last week, well, that story that you would have written, it's in that collection somewhere. It's, it's up there. Somewhere lost in the, 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 the seemingly infinite, but ultimately finite, a uh, honeycomb of books set ablaze by a purifier. Yeah. Uh, another idea that this made me think about is if a world contains all possible combinations of code, mm-hmm. of information signaling code, so all possible information, is it in fact no different than something that contains no information whatsoever? Yeah, yeah, it really does, doesn't it? It's um, it's like saying that, oh, I've, I, I put all possible colors into this paint can. Yeah. Look at this wonderful color I have. No, you just have black at this yeah. point. You just have or some weird brown. Um, it's not the same as saying that it actually encompasses all of these uh, these these pure elements. On a much smaller scale, this makes me think back on, uh, you know, not too long ago I was watching. Oh, it was something on YouTube. It was like a C-SPAN event from the early 2000s or late 90s, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was some journalists talking. Uh, I wish I could remember who. uh but some journalists talking about the impact of the Internet on the spread of information. And I, I remember hearing the sentiment that, you know, they were saying, well, the Internet's great because it opens up all these, uh, you know, new channel. Anybody can start a blog and share their perspective and stuff like that. And I, I think about the cacophony of of information or uh, should we call it information, the cacophony of voices that we live in now. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't say that I would prefer to live in a world where uh, where there were fewer people talking about things. But at the same time, I can't say that I feel really enriched by the uh, the quantity of perspective and opinion being shared on the Internet. You know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Now, here's a question for you. Uh, As long as we're playing with the ideas that spiral out endlessly from the Library of Babel here. Imagine a future in which, you know, we have, we all have virtual worlds that we've built and uh, someone creates not only not something far beyond our current online version of the Library of Babel. Imagine a functional virtual Library of Babel world. You put on your headset, you climb into your tank, turn on your, you know, your drip, and then you're in there. Mm-hmm. And the computer is actually creating each room as you go. 
Okay. The nonsense book. So certainly. it would have to be procedurally generated because a computer storage system could not store the entire right. library. It would have to create as as you go, and yeah. and so. But as you go, it is actually writing non-existent books. Is writing um, different versions of books that already exist. Uh huh. It seems feasible. Uh, certainly, when we start to start considering, you know, the possibility of of um, of AI writers, AI artists. Could we reach a point where the Library of Babel exists and in, 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 in actually trying to come up with new ideas for non-existent books, instead of dreaming them up ourselves, we are actually questing through the library and forcing this randomized uh, artificial intelligence to create them? No, I think that would never work. Yeah? <laughs> well, because the library is too vast. Like we've said, you would come across just pure nonsense. You could wander through this virtual library your whole life mm-hmm. and find almost nothing but complete nonsense. Yeah? Maybe one day you'd find three words in a row that made some kind of grammatical sense. Hmm. W- would that be worth it? I, I feel like it might be worth it. To wander <laughs> this library. If the library was made real uh-huh. in a virtual setting, can you imagine like the, the excitement you would feel when you actually found something readable? Uh, I can imagine sort of. actual clans of purifiers and other sects that would be wandering. I don't know. I, well, so here's one thing. Maybe we could, uh, massively narrow the size of the library. It'd still be astronomical and impossible, but, uh, impossible to find something all that valuable. But what if you limited it to words in a dictionary? So a procedurally generated library of Babel that instead of all possible combinations of characters was all possible combinations of words that exist in a dictionary in your language. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that would narrow it somewhat. But it'd still mostly be gibberish, wouldn't it? Yeah. Huh. I guess I can't help but think of it because I um I recently read uh, Ready Player One. Are you familiar with this book? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Uh, it's pretty fun. Fun book about virtual worlds and recreations of things that exist in pop culture. Library of Babel does not come up, uh, but I can't help but think of, about that, especially since that book deals with a virtual world that contains Easter eggs that people are searching for. <laughs> you know, these little nuggets of meaning, and essentially yeah. they're trying to find a. a a crimson hexagon of a sort in that book. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I can't help but think about the library of Babel as an analogy to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah. You know, the, the vast scale of the universe and our, the only difference is that the library of Babel, you can know how much there is and you can sort of say, well, here are the types of things we'd be looking for, for books that make sense. Mm hmm. But we're still looking for books that make sense from our perspective. Right. Based on our model of sensical books. Yeah. And maybe in reality, we're no better than the purifiers yeah. running around setting things alight because they don't, uh, just dismissing things because they don't line up with our expectations of order and sense. Robert, it is your kind of lawlessness and anarchy that has led to the library being the kind of place it is today. <laughs> we need someone with a strong hand to set the library right. Ah, a new head librarian. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we could obviously we could go on and on here doing uh, various thought experiments about the Library of Babel. And I'm sure you guys and gals can as well. Maybe there's some spin on it that's come to your mind. Maybe there's a cool spin on it that you've encountered in other works. Uh, if so, we would love to hear about it. Uh, we would love to have any number of discussions, um, dare I say, almost infinite number of discussions about the Library of Babel. Uh, you can get in touch with us the, the usual places, uh, social media, where Stuff to Blow Your Mind or Blow the Mind on a number of those. StuffToBlowYourMind.com is the mothership. And then, of course, there is always email. Where you can email your favorite selection from the Library of Babel to us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.